The psychedelic revolution is here. If you want to integrate your visionary experiences into your purpose, get clear on your entrepreneurial path and help people while you do what you love, then this podcast is for you. Welcome to The Psychedelic Entrepreneur, medicine for these times. I'm your host, Beth Weinstein. I'm a spiritual business coach, three-time entrepreneur, and a lifelong student of psychedelics and sacred plant medicines. You carry your own unique medicine, and your medicine is what we need for these times. This podcast will help you to share your medicine so you can create transformation in the world. Listen in on conversations with psychedelic leaders, change makers, and conscious entrepreneurs who are living proof that a better world is possible when you follow your heart and live in alignment with your soul. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. I'm so honored to have Samantha Sweetwater with us today. Hi, Samantha. Thanks for being here. Delightful to be here. Thank you. So glad to finally connect with you and bring you on. I've been wanting to connect with you for a long time now, and we have so many amazing friends in common and feel the same way about the sacred work. So I can't wait to get into it. So I'll tell you a little bit about Samantha. Samantha Sweetwater has spent over three decades facilitating embodied transformation on five continents. She supports her clients and communities as a soul mentor, strategic partner, and deeply loved ceremonial guide. She is a founder and director of One Life Circle, a plant medicine ministry dedicated to truth, love, and the continuity of life. She is a founding advisor to Holos Global, Cunha, Anuma, and a New Earth Project. Her first book, Remember the Miracle, Reimagining Humanists at the End of Our World, will be out this fall, coming up, fall 2023. She is featured in the upcoming documentary, Ordinary Trip, which we will also hear a little bit more about. Samantha, let's get into it now. Um, I would love to hear a little bit about your own path. One of the first questions I ask all my guests is, you know, how did you get onto this career path? And when I say career, it's, you know, more of a life path. But I'm curious, you know, what did you used to do or what did you originally think you were going to do when you grew up, you know, for your work? What was I going to do when I grew up? The first thing I was going to do when I grew up, when I was five, was be an ichthyologist. I was going to study fish. I really, really wanted to study fish. Um, I would say, which is a great place to start, my first teacher is nature. And I was a, a science and biology geek from very young. And then I got really into getting into my body and dance as an antidote to being a really smart kid. And um, I was like a child prodigy who was very clear from very early that all the tracks that were available to me were lame. And (laughs) um, (laughs) it was like, I kind of knew from really early, like I have something in here and it's a soul and I need to figure out how to be this person that I am. So I started locking myself in a wrestling room at my high school when I was 13 and making dances about spiritual states with no name or form. And then I started grabbing other kids and facilitating states work, trance work, to ask really big questions like, what does it mean to come home? What does it mean to belong? What are the things that cause you the most pain? Is love real? How can we do it well? Why do we, why do we fight? Why is there war? And I started making these really long dances, um, choreographed dances about these questions with other kids through states-based exploration from the time I was 13, which I now recognize as like my own process of discovering holotropic work. It in like in an, in an emergent process that no one taught me how to do. Like I just was like locking myself in this room. I'm figuring this thing out and this is really interesting and I want to do it with other people. So that led me to a career as a choreographer and uh, dancer and community uh, organizer in San Francisco at a time when there was still a really, really, this was pre.com, huge underground, vibrant and very shamanic, like really like earth-based energy rootsy, gritty underground art scene in San Francisco that doesn't exist anymore. 
Um, but that was why I moved to San Francisco. I, I trained with a group called Contraband and a woman named Sarah Shelton Mann, who I very much consider like in a way my first shamanic teacher. This woman was a master. She was a choreographer but, and an artist, but she was like an archetype that doesn't really exist anymore. Um, that uh, Pina Bausch was that kind of person, you know, like someone who, who as an artist was tapped into the archetypal human experience and the experience of nature and forces of nature and greater than human energies and meaning. And so on some level, like this all got started for me as a student of meaning and a student of the human humans having human experiences and how that is healing and how that brings us home. Many chapters went by where I became a yoga, where I went through radical injury, really lost my anchor as a performer, got really interested in experience as more fundamental than than performance, like the shared human experience being the the motive to make things. And for a period of time, I was a yoga teacher and trained yoga teachers, found that extremely boring because it's not a pedagogy of liberation. It's a pedagogy of, um, you could say of obedience. Like we go to yoga teachers to follow what they're telling us to do, which is fine. Like I like good yoga teachers who I can follow, but that's not a pedagogy of liberation or of inquiry in a in a deep community sense of emergence. Um, there can be emergence for the individual, but not so much for the group process. Um, so I created this thing called Dancing Freedom, um, trained hundreds of facilitators in it, took it all over the world. It was a very much, for anyone familiar with five rhythms or soul motion or ecstatic dance, it was like kind of a shamanic subset of that, very much grounded in um, grounded in a, a whole systems map for human development, the body, um, and our connection with nature in the more than human world. Um, midway through that experience, I like really discovered that like there was an edge of my own trauma and relational dysfunction that like I couldn't heal with therapy, dance, meditation, yoga, and in a very difficult life passage, when, when I was 35, found my way into a ceremony very, very reluctantly, um, extremely reluctantly. I was like, I'm a yogi. I've got this. I am, I am not interested in like assistance from substances. And it turns out that the alchemy of the love of individuals and a community with the amplified state of psychedelics with prayer which is the, the synergy that I work with and have worked with for my entire um, experience with psychedelics is uh, extraordinarily potent for healing very, very deep trauma and repatterning, um, reparenting uh, what it is to deeply belong and deeply feel whole. Uh, what my teacher calls the unimaginable happiness that there's like a, a place that we're reaching towards that has no precedent in our own nervous system or in our like epigenetic and familial experience. So um, my own trauma and life challenges brought me into ceremonial work, um, which for me was never a one-on-one -on -one therapeutic relationship. It was always a community-based experience. And um, that has brought me into that world. And I've been in that world since then. Um, as someone who's been a facilitator of transformational experiences for my whole life, um, both as a coach and as a group facilitator. So yeah. long, it's a long story, but it's a, I, I, I appreciate it about myself. Like, I think, I think there's a lot of people in the space who have much shorter stories <laughs> And I think it's, long stories are interesting because it speaks to layers of initiation. And um, and that's something I bring to the space. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. And, you know, it's like what you just said, the, the layers of initiation. And I, you know, I talk about this a lot with my clients to really 
own our path and own our story and see all those dots that have connected, like how the one thing brought you to the next, to the next. And it's, you know, this constant path of liberating that, that wholeness, you know, that, that piece that those parts of you that maybe weren't fully whole or they weren't being fully expressed or they were at the time, but then it's just the layers and the layers. And um, this is what I, I love a lot of people to see. This is why I always ask this story because so many people struggle with trying to find themselves or trying to find some purpose or, you know, make meaning out of where they're at in their life, especially if they haven't maybe checked the boxes of whatever it is, success or money or fame or whatever people are after. So thank you for sharing this. So let's shift into a little bit of the work that you do now. You know, you mentioned prayer, um, ceremonial work, transformational work. Let's hear a little bit more about how this came about. And I love that you said you went into your first ceremony reluctantly because that's how I, I was. I said I would only do this once and never again. And here we are. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> I'm curious, you know, what do you, what do you do to help people on their path now? So like kind of broad overview, I hypothesize that, uh, we have a mental health crisis because we've taken the sacred out of the world in the, in the most broad sense that, that the sacred is actually a fabric of deep relationship that we are biologically designed to have that is made out of awe and wonder and respect and reciprocity and curiosity. And it's a dialogue that we're meant to have with like the tree out, out the window and the birds and our neighbors and our own bodies. And <laughs> that is, is about recognizing the, the preciousness. It's about approaching life from a place of aliveness in a really basic way. It's not some imposed divide between the secular and the sacred or the sacred and the profane. Like it's like a recognition that the life we're living itself is a miracle. And unpacking and like really realizing that over and over again. And um, in a, in a fairly humble way, it's not like some endless epiphany. It's, it's like a presence. We're where we are right now because we pulled the sacred out of the world and we've created all kinds of contexts where we interact transactionally as opposed to intimately. We've like pulled connection out of our days. I draw people into very simply the suffering that happens when we don't feel ourselves being fully alive, which can manifest as so many things, right? Like it can manifest as a divorce, a midlife crisis, a sense of being very successful, but totally trapped in one's work and family agreements and arrangements. I work with a fair number of people who I, I work generally with very successful people who have like hit some kind of wall. And that wall often has to do with having followed the program that we've been handed as a, as a society, as a good child, as a good son, as a good daughter, as a good whatever we do. Um, and not having like any nurturing to like deeply feel, which also is always linked to trauma and or attachment wounding. And um, so, yeah, I do, I, I bring people into the work from a place of recognizing that each soul is unique and precious and really wants to liberate its own, like every person's soul, every soul wants to liberate their own genius. Um, which ironically has a lot to do with like embracing the the shocking uh, sameness of our humanity. Like like embracing uniqueness is not the same thing as being more special. <laughs> it's like like the supreme irony is that embracing uniqueness has a lot to do with embracing your normalness and your humanness and the universality of that and like the dissolving shame and guilt and all of the things that keep us in perfectionist mode, but also being able to center in and feel oneself and allow the very subtle, unique fabric of what makes you, you and me, me, you know, shine and express and make choices. <laughs> I was just, this is so funny. I'm cracking up because I was just telling my clients about this the other day. It's like, I'm constantly communicating this where it's like, you are this pillar of light and there's no other human being like you on the planet and we're all the same. 
We're archetypes. We all have the same patternings. It all comes down to these same, you know, like everybody has trauma. Everybody's operating from programming. You know, there's no one fully healed living on this planet that I know of. Um, you know, just constantly in this back and forth of acknowledging that there is this you that is your soul that is incarnated here for this particular reason. Who knows? And it's here to shine and then to also be aware of that, like you said, like the sameness. It's it's interesting how much this topic has come up over the years of interviewing people. And of course, we all see this um, and there's no surprise as to why people are seeking things like healing with psychedelics or, you know, there's more and more modalities and there's more and more people actually witnessing like there's something feeling off, you know, whether it's depression, anxiety, you know, this constant, like the word uncertainty and how much that's been used the last few years. It's like, well, what is at the root of all of this? And where did we, you know, where did we go wrong? And then, you know, what is the solution in your opinion, which I already, you know, you've already mentioned a few of it, but I, I just like to speak into this because I think it's so important. What, you know, especially, being that this is a psychedelic podcast, there's a lot of people that think, oh, I'll just take psychedelics and it'll fix all these problems. It goes back to what I said earlier about pulling the sacred out of the world. You know, I think I think about what we're doing is we're reverse engineering something we've never done before at scale with technology, code word wholeness. <laughs> we're, we're working to reverse engineer wholeness for individuals and wholeness in a society that's never experienced that before. Doesn't make sense to reach back with some kind of romanticism and say, oh, we did this in the past. Like that doesn't actually make sense. You know, it may be that there were cultures that were like in grace and in peace for decades or centuries. The Chavin dynasty, which is kind of a foundation to my own studies, was a 800 year civilization of peace that predated the Inca in Peru that had San Pedro use at the center of it. But the reality is, is like, I don't even know that we've gone wrong, but I know that we haven't gotten it right yet. And, and so we have to approach everything we do with a great deal of humility of like, we probably still, we probably have never quite gotten it right. And we're in a different context than we've ever been before. So what does it look like to reverse engineer wholeness for ourselves and in our relationships and in a civilization that is now global. That's kind of where I hang out in how I think about what we're doing. And I think we're in an incredible moment because we're hacking so many things about doing humanness well. You know, like we're hacking attachment. We're hacking the way that our brains work relative to our bodies. We're hacking better communication modalities for interacting with each other in intimate relationships and in work relationships. We definitely need a very different concept of success. Like the, the kind of like bar that most people are judging themselves against is not a realistic bar either for human happiness or for collective well-being. That's how I think about developing processes and talking with people about the psychedelic experience. I don't think psychedelics actually make sense as a healing modality separate from a pro-social and sacred way of approaching our relationships, both with other people and with, with, with the world and kind of like world as in human world and world as in natural world. I think people are a little too obsessed with like, what is reality? And like, that is not going to get you to a better experience of how you interact with your partner in bed at night. It's totally irrelevant. <laughs> what's, what's relevant is can you co-regulate and communicate and have healthy boundaries and feel yourself in a way where you feel like you're moving from a place of integrity and soften and open to being changed by the connection with another person. That's what matters. So well said, right? You know, I want to dive into this a little bit more because you said some very important points that a lot of people don't seem to point out on a regular basis. But the, the idea of like we are in a different context, you know, like look at the world that we're in. We've never, we've never been at this place of global 
interconnectivity and also disconnection at this level. And you're, I'm just curious, you know, you're based out in California, what I would consider one of the epicenters of the psychedelic renaissance since, you know, the early days. And there's been so much talk and movement about, you know, we just need to get these to everybody and legalize them. And this is the answer. And, and then, you know, you just said, well, I don't think psychedelics are the answer without these other pieces brought in, which is something I speak about constantly. I'm like, it's not the psychedelic. That's a piece of it. Um, there's so much more, but what do you, what do you think is going to be necessary for this quote, psychedelic renaissance to to actually maybe have a, a true effect on the collective, you know, in a positive manner? Simple things. I keep using the word pro-relational. Pro-relational being modalities, models, approaches to therapeutic and or church-based contexts that are community-based. Functionally, what I think strategically is the most important thing to add into our map is that one-on-one client client therapist relationships are not effective at creating experiences that help us to be human with multiple other humans. And the rest of our life is always being human with multiple other humans. So on a very simple, strategic, kind of tactical level, I think we need group therapeutic models. I don't think anyone is doing that well yet. I mean, it's interesting because to do it well is very difficult. It requires a very high level of skill on the part of facilitators. Interestingly, it also could be a more financially viable model. So I will just say group experiences and furthermore community stewardship that is real and in-person outside of the therapeutic process. So um, we need that desperately. It's a very, I mean, that, that question is a place where I spend a lot of time in thinking. And they're not easy questions to solve in the context of a VC-funded rollout <laughs> of the industry. <laughs> but I mean, if I, if I am talking right now to people who are in the VC-funded industry, I would say, get humble and recognize that you don't get it yet. These substances have been worked with in indigenous contexts for millennia tens and tens of thousands of years, probably hundreds of thousands of years, in contexts that understood that these substances help us to connect with something much larger than ourselves, who we are as beings in connection to other humans, who we are as beings in connection to other natural beings, who we are as beings in connection to ancestors, past, present, and future, and how we coexist in a continuity of culture that is greater than our lifetime. So like the psychotherapeutic model that we're working with predominantly in the rollout of psychedelics is really ineffective to nurture human beings who feel themselves in a broader context of just other human beings first and foremost, but the continuity of life, of nature, of ancestors, we don't know anything about that. So First and foremost, I would say humility. Second, I would say getting really curious about what kind of facilitative models generate pro-social, pro-social forward healing processes, what kinds of experiences can reconnect us with a sense of the importance of nature being connected to our lives. And I can't emphasize this enough because we know we're heading rapidly towards a major extinction event that includes most human beings and to work in this space in, in, in a, in ways that don't actually reckon with that is just stupid. It's just culturally idiotic. I mean, for the psychedelic movement to be a Renaissance, it has to have a radical cultural imagination about what it looks like for human beings to live in, in, in alignment with our planet. I'm constantly talking about this and it's so amazing how much it's left out of the conversation. You know, it's like blinders. And you said one thing that was very important is that there's certain models of care that would actually benefit the collective, the whole, but they don't make money. And they would benefit individuals. They would have better and longer lasting results. Is that that's the supreme irony, right? Is and and the the challenge, you know, I was talking to an MD in the space a couple nights ago, 
who's working in one of the top research labs in the country. And he was just suffering because he said, you know, people are throwing tons of money because the way money gets thrown at things is in these tiny little provable micro steps that aren't doing anything to support the kind of holism that we need to actually create healthy human beings and a healthy culture. You know, so one of the conversations I'm in with that lab is how can we create controls in research context to research more pro-relational models and evidence that, that the long-term results of this are actually much better for individuals and fam- we could probably research it for families too. It's researching things on a community dimension is immensely hard, but there is potential to research the outcomes for individuals and families, and that's exciting. So I'm I'm thinking a lot about how could we create frames to actually scientifically evidence that these are better things to do. And it's really hard because there's so many more controls, but it's totally necessary. It's like, we won't get to a renaissance. Like, what is the meaning of renaissance, right? Like, it's a radical cultural reboot. Like The renaissance emerged out of the Black Death. The renaissance quite literally was started by two mid-level civil servants sitting outside of the gates of Venice with like a third of the population dead in the streets, literally saying, what can we do to redeem this situation? And I think we have to ask that question. We have to say like, how do we redeem our situation? And not just for individuals, like it's such a different paradigm than a quick fix. It's like what the Renaissance was, was an invitation to the human creative spirit to participate in creating greater beauty in the world. That's such a different frame than the psychotherapeutic model, and particularly than the psychiatric model, which is symptoms-based. I would say the other thing strategically that we can do in the industry is start to do more work with healthy normals. I mean, we definitely need to address PTSD and suicidal ideation and addiction and all the things. Like, I'm a huge advocate for that. I don't, I'm a massive yes to it. But but the, there's another dimension that where we can start to flesh out how these, how to work with a much more holistic vision of how do we improve people's lives. And that's around life satisfaction, a sense of purpose, um, a effectiveness in our relationships. Like we need to, I would say to researchers, like let's do more work around healthy normals um, and, and funders, like that that work actually provides a much greater opportunity for cultural imagination um, that's, that really matters. Those are some things that I think about. <laughs> Beautiful. And it's, it's interesting because I've, I've made, I've created a few summits around this interconnection of the medicine path and awakening to the sense of purpose, you know, like literally just awakening to your soul. You know, the last summit I did was called psychedelic soul's purpose psychedelic sacred medicine, soul's purpose and business, integrating visionary experiences into heart-centered entrepreneurship or conscious entrepreneurship. And I've had this same discussion about, you know, there's so much talk of healing the anxiety and PTSD and depression and so on. But then what about, like you just said, the, the shift into people who are, are functioning fine, fine as in like just fine, but they're disconnected. They have no sense of what's going on around them. They are not actually even feeling their bodies. They don't care about the earth, you know, and so on. And how can these, these medicines actually have an effect? If you're actually not at the point where you're dealing with, you know, complex PTSD and having to heal that, but you're thriving in you know the traditional sense of success and like you said people who've done well you know on paper but then maybe they just actually feel like they have no meaning and they feel totally disconnected and maybe this is actually where there is some opportunity for the larger scale um solving the world's problems or healing the planet but this comes back to this question of like well why would a venture capitalist invest into that? You know, like where's the money and where's the the money going into the research? Probably not a lot. I mean, I'm assuming there's some. I hope there's some. I'm curious, you know, do you feel like there's a 
a larger systematic issue here that it that it's like, you know, all of everything is still coming back to how can we make money on it? How can it um, turn into a business? Kind of like you said, taking the sacred out. Do you feel like this is the the gist of what's happening in the psychedelic space? Or do you feel like? Yeah. And I, I, I mean, personally, I would put the brakes on decriminalization immediately because I don't think it's looking good for communities. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the original D, I was part of the original decrim crew and the original decriminalization movement was, was and is a community movement. It's a movement to restore sovereignty to communities, to continue to be in the emergence of a culture that is community-based. There's many systemic arguments to say that there's a, that capitalism counterdicts community, that the, the social good that happens in community does not thrive in the context of monetization because monetization incentivizes consistently behaviors that, are, that don't live in the fabric that is community. <laughs> yeah, I would say... We, we really need to examine how we're liberating community sovereignty. I think there's businesses doing great work around community. Kuya, which is one of the businesses I advise, is doing profoundly excellent work in Austin to, to nurture community as a business. I'm super proud of them. I'm super proud of what we're doing. I'm super proud of like the kind of multi-tiered economic model that we're working on that makes space for community and is also still working out how to be profitable in other verticals of the business. I'm dancing for joy around what we're creating there. Shout out to Gunter Bergman and Jess Magic and Kuya. I think we also need to be really, really careful about our aspirations about like, you know, a frame like decrim or legalization that then implies levels of regulation that don't liberate community sovereignty. We are not mature enough yet in our understanding of this medicine to do that. That's, I've been stating that for five years now, and I am only seeing the evidence radically reflected with what's going on in Oregon. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to watch people who actually hold indigenous values, community values, the values of access, choosing not to do business because it is the context is prohibitive. That is the saddest possible outcome. I feel like a warrior around that, like one way or the other, I'm going to stand for that. And I I would like to see more people speaking that out loud at conferences in front of funders and say like, look, like there's a lot that we don't understand about this that we actually need to place our attention on more rigorously. For me personally, like I'm also putting energy behind research that evidences that these are the things we actually need to be healthy humans. We need more research in that space and there's not a lot of it. I live with the person who wrote like the best paper on why community-based experience matters. It's called Communitas. Um, the lead author is Hannes Kettner and with Robin Har- Carhart-Harris. So there is a little body of research there. There's an excellent paper around ayahuasca and working with Palestinians and Israelis, but it's small, you know, and we just need a much more robust body of evidence that what we're here to do, we need to do together. And if we're creating economic frameworks and context and legal frameworks and context that disincentivize that, we've already failed. Every time that happens, we've failed at the possibility of a renaissance occurring. I'm so glad you're speaking out against uh, or ab- ab- about this, not just against. I don't like using that word, but really just speaking out and giving the other side of it. Because we were speaking off camera, you know, when we're recording this is a week after, right? Or yeah, that was a week ago after the election of um, Prop 122 in Colorado. And it was the first time where I started hearing about the the other pieces that aren't being talked about as much like you you just talked about like community sovereignty originally i was like well yes of course i want all these medicines legalized for everybody's free use but then you know in comes regulation and rules and and also i mean i've you know heard many different rumors as to regulating like the kind of psilocybin that's that's worked with in Oregon and that it can only be a certain kind and it's only synthetic and I you know just all these things where I'm like wait a second I thought this was designed to just 
let people practice how they they choose. Meaning if you want to go to a ceremony versus a one-on-one therapy session, why is it much different? Um, I'm curious, you know, you being on the front lines, what is the conversation, especially out in the West Coast where a lot of this this all started and is still being really led, um, you know, are people aware of this kind of this other aspect of it? And is, are there people speaking up? Because of course, everybody just celebrates like crazy when things are passed, but then not as many people I've noticed are talking about this. Is What is the the feel out there? I mean, it's hard. I wouldn't say that I'm deeply attentive to the pulse of the conversation. I, I live so much in my own little, you know, it's like Kuya is in Austin, so I'm in a different conversation there. And Kuya, Kuya's founder, Gunter Bergman, has made a very strong choice not to not to like pay much attention to the industries. Like I'm just going to do what it feels like it's right for me to do. But I would say, you know, based on a conversation, a circular dialogue I was in a couple weekends ago, people are aware that this is a huge problem. But it's complicated, you know. I mean, the the because. We live in kind of a soundbite world. And of course, it sounds great to have decriminalization or legalization. That seems like an obvious forward motion. You know, it's it's complex to dis- to explain why it might not be a good thing. I don't think that's a dominant awareness. <sighs> I'm trying to just like, not get upset because I, you know, I actually feel sometimes the same way. It's like I'm just doing my thing. And maybe it's, you know, blatant spiritual bypassing where it's like, well, everything will take care of itself or it will all work out somehow. Or maybe we just need to do this all wrong to then figure out how to do it right. But then at the same time, it's like, well, there's there's people speaking up and we have these platforms and, you know, we we have outlets to at least give a different perspective and have people maybe rethink. And I I also agree that this is moving very fast without a lot of thought behind it uh, as to how is this actually serving the whole. Um, But again, I think this is like a larger systematic problem where it's like, well, who's funding the push for these bills? You know, like where, where's the, the root of all of this? So it's, you know, I don't know, lobbyists or a certain amount of companies or investors. I don't know. But anyways, let's shift gears a little bit. You know, I'm curious to to hear a little bit more about what you've been seeing as someone who's been kind of in this realm for a while. What do you see as the, the general pattern and feeling in your clients over the last few years? Like, what, is, what are people going through and what is it that they're shifting into? You know, is it like you're seeing just this common thread of people all feeling disconnected? Is it the the pandemic is it the energies of the world that we're in today and do you think things are you know moving in a positive direction hmm. i mean things <laughs> our world is moving in many directions and i would say one of the frames that i work with this is kind of my own little tagline is that we're in what i call the big cleanup where here at a time when we, like like I said earlier, we are hacking what it is to optimize our humanness pretty quickly. We're learning how to clean up the trauma in our bodies, our brains, our in our family histories, and our s- structural cultural histories. We're 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 really like looking at it right now. I'd say where we are on some level is like we're like so in the face of the problem, and that can be additionally triggering. Like Black Lives Matter has like all the dimensions of the additional triggering, but there's an opportunity to like look squarely at structural racism, for example. There's an opportunity to look squarely at developmental attachment trauma in ways that we couldn't before because we're coming to understand the architecture of how that works in a brain and a body and a developmental process. So what I see in general is I see people are more educated I see people are more educated that on one level, we actually are in the middle of this big cleanup. We're in a very messy point of it, but it's real. And additionally, I perceive that we're inside a planetary crucible. So we're in a point where biologically, you could call it a macroorganism or or you could call it Gaia, like the, the living system that supports the macroorganism of humans. It's contracting. We've 
created an ecological context for collapse that additionally is being triggered by technological existential risk, political existential risk, economic stressors. And like all of that, the way I perceive that, it's like a psychobiological crucible that we're inside of, which just like... um, the daylighting of what of like our our wounding like both of those factors have kind of like an additional triggering and additional friction involved but they also have an additional potential and like a very strong motivation of like holy crap we need to solve these problems like i see a particular quality happening with a lot of my clients which is a responsivity that like i see as a bios what i call biospiritual it's like you could say spiritually we're being called to be the solution, but like also quite literally biologically we're being called to be the solution to the problems we've created for ourselves. And that that is a positive driver ultimately. I'm very much seeing that in my clients. And I, I call in people who are like responsive to that on a purpose level. So I have a specific kind of lens there, but I see that in general in the world. I mean, we're really creative and we're responsive. And it doesn't really matter whether you say it's the nature of our souls to create, which I think it is, or if you say it's the nature of our biology to create, like living organisms seek to adapt to their environment. And so it's like, I think there's a real thing going on, which is like, what's the more adaptive response for humanity? And the more adaptive response One adaptive response is to control and continue to engage the multipolar traps of capitalism, which ultimately kind of like will hem us into a very sucky place on the chessboard that either looks like ecological collapse or total like control state capitalism. But there's a third possible avenue, what Daniel Schmachtenberger calls the third way, which looks like the choosing collaboration with each other and our planet as an adaptive response, healing our trauma as an adaptive response, because it actually makes us more available to making better decisions relative to personal and collective well-being. Oh, I love this. I'm like, ooh, let's go deeper than this. Yeah, it's kind of like, um, you know, we almost have no choice. Is that what you mean by, because I, I feel that. I mean, I see it with my clients every day. One of my clients recently said, she's like, Beth, this isn't a business coaching program. This is like a spiritual growth program. And I was like, it's, there's no separation. It's like, you're just, your soul is incarnated here at this crazy time in human history. Like, think about it. Like, it's just, to me, it's so like apparent, you know, why I'll wake up in the middle of the night and remind myself, I have these like existential moments and they're always in the middle of the night where I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm alive right now. (laughs) Like, but then it's like, oh, okay, I'm here for some reason. And it's part of the, you know, it's part of this grand story of, of what's happening on the planet. But when you say that, like the the biological piece of it, like how do you explain this to someone who's maybe never heard anything about what you're talking about or Daniel's work, who's incredible as well? Um, but, you know, for people that are, let's say, maybe even struggling, you know, because I've seen this so many people, it's like people fall into major depressions because of the, you know, things that are just so beyond our, like, one person's control on the planet. What do you say to people to help them at least, you know, try to understand that, okay, it's not you, it's it's all of us and you, you know, it's like it, climate grief or planetary mourning, which, of course, I think a lot of us just live with, you know, but w- yeah, what do you say to people who are, like, in this place? I mean, really simply, I tell, I, I say to people, you're an organism and you're having an experience that is organismic. Like it is stressful to be in an environment that is degrading. It's stressful. I mean, there's all kinds of stressors we deal with all the time. It's stressful to be in sonic environments that have a ton of different stuff going on. It's stressful to be in vibrational environments that have a ton of different Wi-Fi is going on. It's like we've created, it's stressful to be in a food system that doesn't have the nutrients in it any longer that your body actually needs. All of these things are facts, you know? And so people are kind of like, oh, whoa, like fact. (laughs) That's so relieving. The way I, in my cosmology, the way I see this is our bodies and our souls are one. (laughs) 
like your soul chooses your body, your body manifests your soul, like a space for your soul. There's no separation between these two things, but the soul is that which like kind of makes you uniquely responsive. The things that give you joy uniquely are different than me. The quirky things that you notice are different than the things I notice, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, we're all just a slightly different flavor. And that is part of how we get to respond to these stressors that we all share. You know, what do you love? What breaks your heart? What keeps you up at night? What makes you the most angry? <laughs> um, what what makes you, what would you do if you knew you would fail anyway? What would you do if you knew failure was inevitable? Two favorite questions, you know, it's like, and each person will answer that differently, you know? So that's part of how you think of humanity as a superorganism. Each individual in the superorganism has this different contribution to make in terms of being responsive to this, like, collapse. But that's that's the way I explain it to an individual. Obviously, like you're having an organismic experience. It sucks. It sucks for everyone. It's better once you realize that it sucks. Like we we spend a lot of time denying that it sucks. And I think that's one of the great kind of sociopathic dissociations of our world right now is like, let's just band-aid it with more shopping. <laughs> band-aid it with social media, band-aid it with this. Yeah constant bypassing. Um, what was the one, there was a conversation I had recently where they're like, you know, I don't understand why no one's talking about this happening and on a planetary level. I'm like, well, cause it would upset people <laughs> like just super simple. I'm like, well, of course they don't want to talk about it. People would just be really upset and we don't want that because then it would, you know, screw up the whole entire system and things wouldn't work the way, you know, they, they've designed it to be, um, one gigantic bypass of, feeling the feelings, including the the negative, hard, you know, shadowy feelings that feel very uncomfortable. <laughs> Samantha, I want to give you time to talk about, um, you know, you have a book coming out and then also this film. Let's, can we hear about this? I don't know if these are, what are these all about? Yeah. So these are really exciting things. And I also have an ebook coming out sooner than the book that I really am excited to offer to people. So I'm writing a book called Remember the Miracle, Reimagining Humanness at the End of Our World, which is, you know, what I've been speaking about, about this, this crucible and an, our more adaptive possible response. Uh, this book is about the crucible we're inside of and the more po adaptive possible response <laughs> of the third way forward that involves the big cleanup and um, enabling our souls to create the things we're here to create to co-harmonize with the planet that we're part of. So that's really exciting. That's going to come out next uh, fall 2023. If we uh, backtrack from that, um, in the spring of next year, I'm in a movie that I'm so excited about this movie. This movie is called Ordinary Trip, and it's about healthy normals uh, coming to the medicine um, something we I didn't say when I was talking about healthy normals is it turns out that almost all of us have some pretty dense layers of yeah. trauma. So like being a healthy yeah. normal doesn't mean you don't have crap you don't have to clean up. Um, and this movie is um, follows Ronan Levy, who's the executive chair of Field Trip, in a very vulnerable. It's like he's so brilliant on film. He's I love Ronan so much and. Every single person in that film is so courageous. Like, like, and and including the team that filmed it, like they're the team that filmed it is Shy Kids Media. They are the best human beings. I've never had the experience of being around so many cameras and people and just feeling like it was like an invitation to vulnerability and authenticity. They're the most lovely human beings. The director and is is a brilliant, brilliant human. Charlie and Walter. You're amazing. So that's going to come out. The dates to be determined, but depending on whether we launch it at um, at which festival, probably Sundance, which will be really fun. And it's beautiful. I'm I'm so excited. It's like the mo it's like I've watched a lot of psychedelic documentaries, and I'm biased, of course, but it's the most beautiful one I've ever seen. Wow. And so that makes me feel better because <laughs> I interviewed him. Um, I don't know, nine or 10 months ago. And he talked about it and I was like, huh, they're just following you around doing different trips. <laughs> he didn't get into details. And then I, I think I asked him, I was like, have you drank ayahuasca yet? And he was like, no, but maybe that's changed. 
I don't know if it's changed because ayahuasca is not featured in the oh. film, but I do know his worldview has grown a lot. The man has grown quite a lot. I'm very proud of him. And so that's coming out. It's a really lovely discussion. Like it really looks at the intersection between cultural intersection in a way of what what is it when you go to if you're if you're in a dominant worldview paradigm and you go to a more ceremonial context, it kind of seems like woo. And it addresses that really transparently and really in a really like real humans having a real experience of like, I feel like I'm going to spiritual summer camp, like what's happening? And the cast is incredible. They're all real people doing very real work with themselves and continuing to do the work. And I'm in that as a facilitator, really talking about a, a vision of the future of psychedelics that integrates the best of science and the best of psychotherapy and the best of indigenous and community knowledge. I feel like the film stewards that vision really beautifully. And then backtracking from that, I have an ebook coming out soon, date to be determined, but probably uh, bef right before or right after Christmas called True Human. That is, uh, if you imagine that we have greater than human teachers who live on other planets who have already hacked like what it is to be a humanoid species living in integrity with the planet they occupy. And they came and they like gave you the download about how to be a human really well. This little ebook is like, it's their message to us about how to be a human really well. And it, it also, you could approach it kind of as a psychedelic liturgy for that answers a lot of the questions that we talked about today, but from the vantage point of teachers from another planet that have already gone through this very awkward adolescent growth stage and figured it out and come to understand what humans are actually for and how we can actually live together well and with each other and with other organisms and more than human energies on the planet. That's what that ebook is. And so we're working on putting together some very cool illustrations and things and I'm so excited that's to give it away. Great. I know. I'm like, send me that. Yeah, that's amazing. And wait, you wrote that yourself, but then someone else is doing illustrations? It's one of those things when you bring something through that's very much bigger than you, where I'm like, I didn't write that. But but yes, I write I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> gotta gotta Hello create a name it. for your channel, you know? <laughs> like <laughs> Samaya Storm. That's my other name. Oh, there you go. There. Perfect. Ah, uh, Samantha, this has been really amazing. I am so glad to finally meet you. I've heard so much, so much positive work, positive feedback about your work and you as a person over the years. And oh my God, I actually will bring you back on. Um, you know, maybe when your book comes out, we could do a follow-up because I do also really want to um, keep this conversation going to just share another viewpoint on what's happening, at least here in America, when it comes to the legalization conversation and to keep the sacred sacred. I mean, this is my, you know, this is a huge piece of my own journey too. And to really make sure that we don't lose sense of this. And my deepest prayer is that those who are stepping onto the medicine path or on this medicine path, realize that this cannot be left out of the conversation. Tambien. <laughs> Yes. Thank you so much. And when your e when your book comes out, send us the link and we'll add it to this uh, episode so we can share it around with more people. I will. Thank you. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Take care. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you're feeling inspired, I'd appreciate it if you showed your love with a review. And check out my YouTube channel where you can find the video version of this podcast. You can also head to BethAWeinstein.com to learn more about me and grab my free business growth trainings. Remember, you carry your own unique medicine and your medicine is what we need for these times.